right, good morning, church. It's good to see you all this morning. It's good to worship our God together. We're going to look at his word. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. And we are, this month, we're devoting our time Sunday after Sunday to thinking deeply about the incarnation, the advent, the arrival of God with us in Jesus Christ. And this text is another classic Advent passage in the sense that it tells us what God will do when he gets here. When God arrives on the scene in Jesus Christ, this is what he'll be like, Isaiah told us in advance. And so follow along with me in Isaiah 11. I'm going to read the first 10 verses. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips and faithfulness a belt around his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, their young ones will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain For the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. On that day, the root of Jesse, we were just singing about this a moment ago, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance and his resting place will be glorious. Everything that you read in the Bible is meant to bring you and put you in touch with two realities. Two realities. One, everything God says is true, and everything God promises he will do. Everything we read in God's word, every time we study God's word, we're supposed to come into contact with those realities. What God says is true, what God promises he will accomplish, he will bring to pass. And so you read through the Old Testament, for example, and then you keep reading and you get into the New Testament, and you're supposed to be having these deja vu moments all the way through. Like, I've read that somewhere, I've heard that somewhere, and you go back and dig into the pages of the Old Testament, and you realize, this was promised, God said this would happen just this way, right? And the effect of that exercise is supposed to be increased faith in the hearts of those who trust in Jesus. And increased faith, friends, is a gift that keeps on giving because faith comes with hope. Faith comes with a sense of mission and purpose, right? Think about that. Think about the relationship between faith and other dynamics of the Christian life. So the more that we trust God, the more unshakable our hope, even in the midst of trials. And the more we trust God, the more we want others to know God, the more we want to share his word and spread a passion for his glory. So you put all that together, and what do you see? And I hope this is the effect 
on our lives, even as we look at Advent text after Advent text in this series. You put it together, God wants to make us unsinkable and unstoppable. He wants to make us unsinkable in hope and unstoppable in mission. He wants to fill us up with faith in believing this really is the best news we've ever heard, and he wants to fill us up and send us out as witnesses because this best news that we've ever heard is the best news that some have never heard, as we heard just a moment ago in Royce's story. So we're going to look at those two things here in Scripture. Number one, the best news we've ever heard. The best news we've ever heard. So there's good news in this passage because Isaiah is promising this rescuer, this this king who was sent by God. God was going to send his Messiah. So it's good news about a king. That's that's the first point under this main idea. It's, It's news about a king. You see those words right there. In verse one, a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. That, that seems like maybe a veiled reference to, to us if we're not real familiar with the Old Testament, but that reference would not have been lost on God's Old Testament people. They knew who Jesse was. Jesse was on the radar primarily because of Jesse's son, right? Jesse had a relatively famous, a crazy famous son, King David, was Jesse's son, right? I remember a, a few months ago, I was getting ready for a volleyball game. I was gonna watch my daughter play a volleyball game, and, um, and I was talking to one of the dads from the other team, sort of fraternizing you know, with the enemy for a little while. Who's on your team? You know, not really, but anyway, finding out about him and getting to meet him and introducing myself, and I found out, okay, his name is Antoine, and I said, did your daughter play on the team? And he said, yeah, and he pointed to her. And, uh, and I would later learn, he didn't say anything about, else about his daughter, but I would learn about five minutes later, she's the best girl on their team. She's number 16, and number 16 was legendary. Number 16 was a problem for us that night in that game. So before the game, he was Antoine. After the game, he was Antoine and the father of number 16, right? There, there was that immediate reference, okay, now, now I see you on a, a different radar, right? That's Jesse in the Old Testament. He's the dad of the king, the greatest king Israel has ever seen. And if there's a, if there's a shoot sticking up out of Jesse's stump, that's welcome news for Israel in the 7th century, 8th, 8th century B.C. Because Assyria is on the prowl. And Assyria is moving and encroaching on Israel's territory. And Jesse's the one who sires kings. A line of kings came from Jesse. And so we could use that. We could use a shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse. Assyria was the dominant force in the 8th century ancient Near East. Speaking of trees and speaking of stumps, Assyria is pictured at the end of chapter 10, if you get your Bible still open. At the end of chapter 10, Assyria is pictured as a forest of thick forest of tall trees sort of ominously standing at the base of the hill of Jerusalem, but then something unexpected happens. Look at chapter 10, verse 32. Today the Assyrians will stand at Nob, shaking their fists at the mountain of daughter Zion, the hill Jerusalem. Look, the Lord God of armies will chop off the branches with terrifying power and the tall trees of Assyrian 
power will be cut down. The high trees felled. He, that is God, is clearing the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon with its majesty will fall. So that's the promise of God. Assyria, you're the, the threat that's way too strong for you, that's standing at the base of the hill, shaking their fists and saying, we're coming to get you. And everybody else that we've come to get, they've all fallen before our might. And God says, I'm going to clear Assyria. I'm going to lop her down. That thick forest, those tall trees are all going to be felled by God's might. Now, if you keep reading Isaiah, you find out what Israel is doing as they see that ominous army at the base of the hill of Jerusalem. She's not resting in God's promise. She's not praying and trusting in him. She's picking up every phone she can. She's working political alliances. She's calling Egypt. Get Egypt on the phone. Egypt has some power. Maybe Egypt will work with us to get Assyria off our backs. Maybe we can make a pact with Egypt, make them some promises, send them some checks and some resources, right? That's what Israel is doing. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is Israel has the best news they've ever heard, but she doesn't believe it. She's not actually cashing in on these promises. She doesn't essentially trust God. You think about that for our own lives as Christians. How much spiritual defeat in our lives is owing to the fact that we doubt the sovereignty and goodness of God? You think about that for our own lives. We doubt when push comes to shove, we wouldn't say it with our lips necessarily, but when push comes to shove, we doubt he'll be true to his word. We doubt he'll keep his promises, right? I want to trust God right now, but this is just too heavy. I want to trust him with this, but this is too complicated, right? I want to give him this area of my life. I know there are warnings in scripture about living my life this way, but this one thing is making me happy right now, so I'm going to go with it. We do that in a hundred different ways. There's this transition from Isaiah chapter 10 to Isaiah chapter 11. We move from Israel's plight before the Assyrian powers to Israel's hope in the coming of God and God with us. That stump in verse one tells you how bad it got in Israel. A stump, you just think about it. A stump is an image of death, right? I remember after Katrina, living in New Orleans, after Katrina a lot of our trees had fallen down and some of the other ones hadn't fallen down, but we thought, what if another storm comes in and throws this one down at our house? So me and my friends and neighbors, we all agreed that we were gonna help each other. We were gonna save money and help each other cut down our trees. It was a really bad idea. We almost lost our lives a couple of times, but we were doing that, right? And I remember we were cutting down Dan's tree across the street and Dan's mother-in-law was inside holding her ears and she told Dan later on, she said, I could hear the trees screaming. And I said, Dan, no, tell her that was Frank's chainsaw. <laughs> it didn't go over very well. But anyway, th- right, there were these stumps all over our neighborhood. It just indicated to you something huge used to live right here. This awesome tree used to be right here. A stump is an image of death. And the stump is Jesse's stump. Jesse's dynasty is dead, apparently. Once Assyria came through, once Babylon came through, there was, there was nothing left. The hope of Israel was gone. And then Isaiah 11, verse 1, if you will, is Christmas morning. Verse 1, look at it again. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Right? You look into the manger on Christmas morning, and it might not look like much. 
It might not look like something you can hang your hopes on, but it's a shoot. It's this tender little green shoot sticking up out of the perfect stump. It's Jesse's stump, right? Then you come into the first chapter of the book of Matthew, and what does the gospel writer Matthew do? He takes out out a genealogy, and he says, let me tell you who this person is. It's sort of ancestry.com is Matthew chapter one, and he walks you back, and he says, and then some of those names that you read in, in Matthew chapter 1, they're supposed to be familiar names. Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram. Wait, those are kings. This child has king's blood in him. He's, he's from the stump of Jesse. Jesse's dead stump is alive. And here, so this ancient prophecy goes on then to describe the traits, the characteristics of this promised king. You see it in your notes that the king would be endowed with the spirit. He would be endowed with the spirit. So what does Isaiah say? Look for this when Messiah comes. He says, the spirit of the Lord, verse two, will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding. You remember, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you remember maybe in Luke chapter two when Jesus, he's a little boy and he's separated from his family. And what do people notice about him? Wisdom. Understanding. Here's what it says. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. It was a mark. You could see it. And Isaiah called it 750 years earlier. He said, when you find him, you're going to find him Wise, you're going to find him filled with counsel and understanding. It goes on to say in verse 2 a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You think about Jesus' whole life as you read the Gospels. It was, it was driven by this glad hearted submission to his Father. What did he say? He said, My meat and drink is to do the will of my heavenly Father. It's all he wanted to do, everything that he did, everything that he said was driven by this reverent awe at God the Father. He lived in the fear of the Lord. In other words, we're supposed to read Isaiah 11 and then when we see Jesus show up in the pages of the Gospels, it's supposed to be deja vu all over the place. We've seen this before, we've heard this before. As a matter of fact, Jesus' opening words, his very first sermon, and he pulls out a text. The very first words of his very first sermon are these. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's supposed to be deja vu. Wait, we've heard that somewhere. Where do we hear? In Isaiah 11, right here in this text. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Jesus' first words, very first sermon. The spirit of the Lord is on me. We're supposed to see that connection, right? Next point, the king would see the heart and contend for the weak. See the heart and contend for the weak. Verse three, look at that. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. Is it any coincidence that 750 years later, Jesus would arrive on the scene and he would say things like this, John 7, 24. Stop judging according to outward appearances. Rather, judge according to righteous judgment. Jesus didn't merely see things the way that you and I see them. He saw through things. He saw to the heart of reality. He saw to the heart of man. He saw the motivations that are covered up by layers and layers of pretense. But he saw straight through it. 
John 2, 23, it says this, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. I'm a huge, um, actually our whole fa- family is a huge Columbo fan. So yeah, I'm referring to the detective show from the 1970s. And I own every Columbo episode ever produced and have watched them. We were even watching one last night as a family. So we, we're thoroughly acquainted with Columbo. And um, one of the things about Columbo, if you're not familiar with him, the, the murderers are always the person Columbo hangs out with the whole show. So it's not a whodunit. You know exactly who it is. It's whoever's hanging out with Columbo the entire time. But they always seem to be just the most charming people on earth. Right? There's, there's one where there's this really witty and bubbly older lady who's an author, you'd have no idea, judging from outward appearances, that she locked her nephew-in-law in an airtight, soundproof safe until he died. I mean, this is like dark. You would have no idea judging from outward appearances, right? Well, Jesus, Jesus wasn't duped by what he saw on the outside and what he heard with his ears. And when the crowds heard the Pharisees praying, they all went home and said, how do they do that? I mean, how are they so close to God? It's like, they're, it's like they live with the angels. It's like they pray in another dimension. I wish I could do that, right? And Jesus said, no, that, that's not what's going on at all. Jesus looks at them and he says, your, your lips are moving, but your hearts are a million miles away from God. He saw right through all the outward appearances and pretense. He would see the heart. He would contend for the weak. Verse four, he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. So Isaiah is saying, centuries in advance, look for Messiah, and when you look for him, you're not gonna find him hobnobbing with the elites. He's not gonna seek out the rich and the powerful and the people in the Roman Senate. He's he's gonna advocate for the lowly and the oppressed and the poor and the outcast. After service, he'll be talking to the children. He'll be blessing them and laying his hand on their heads. That's how you'll find him. It won't be the customary entrance of a king into this world. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, if you will, he comes with arms full of presents. And he says, here's here's this first one I've got for you. This This is the kingdom of heaven. And I'm giving this to the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit, come, get the kingdom of heaven. He's giving the great gifts to all the the lowly. Isaiah called in advance, this king would see the heart, he would contend for the weak. Next, this king would love righteousness. He would love righteousness. Verse four, the first part of it, he will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth. Even in Jesus' first coming, Even in his words in the pages of the Gospels, you can hear, you can see glimpses of the sharp tongue of God's judgment. He calls the Pharisees, he says, you blind guides, you whitewashed tombs, you tangle of snakes. He's very direct, he confronts hypocrisy. Remember, just bear in mind, Jesus is God with us. He's not God's love come down to earth. He's God come down to earth. God the merciful, God the just, God the righteous. He's fully man and fully God. He's he's the fullness, as Paul says, the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. You, You think about what God's word says to us, right? God's word, if it never corrects you, 
something's wrong. God speaks to our sin. He doesn't, he doesn't negotiate the terms of obedience. He speaks directly. He speaks the truth. This is what scripture says. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It, still talking about God's word, it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God's commands, friends, expose our need. God's commands are meant to bring us to the end of ourselves, not make us feel good about how well we're doing. They bring us to the end of ourselves. God's commands aren't a series of ladders that we climb in order to reach heaven. That that is the difference between Christianity and every other religion on earth. Just think about it this way. Some of us I think haven't discovered the transforming power of Jesus Christ because we still think we can do it on our own. In other words, you're in the way. You still think you can pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps. You, you think you have bootstraps. You think you have boots. You think you have arms that can actually lift something. You have moral strength in and of yourself. And Jesus came to just say, there's no way. There's no way you're reaching heaven only through me. And the Pharisees, they didn't want that. They said, look, give us a payment plan. Give us a spiritual monthly installment plan. Don't try to pay all of our debts. That makes us sound like such sinners. Jesus said, I came for sinners. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came for sinners. If we had it all together, if all we need was was a spiritual workout program, then Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. I love what Tim Keller said. He said, we're so bad Jesus had to die for us. We're so loved, Jesus was glad to die for us. Friend, that's the gospel. If you've been trusting in your own works, give that up. It's going nowhere, there's no hope there. Trust in Jesus, trust that his death on the cross is sufficient to cover all of your sin, all of my sin laid on him. He took the justice, he took the heat of God against our sin. Trust in him. The best news we've ever heard is about a king. Next, it's about a kingdom. It's news about a kingdom. It's about a kingdom that has already dawned in Jesus and is going to fully arrive and come in full strength when Jesus returns again. You'll see this point in your notes. The kingdom will triumph over evil. It will triumph over evil. Look again at verse 4. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. There is evil in this world and it will be eradicated by Jesus. He will deal with the enemy of our souls, enemy that's too strong for us, that we do have an enemy in this world. That's a biblical view of things and as Andrew Peterson's song, his Advent song says, we need a king on a throne full of power, with a sword in his fist. Prophet, tell us, will there be another king like this? And scripture answers definitively, there will. 
Jesus will come. He will have a sword in his hand. He will put his enemy to flight. He will eradicate evil from this world. You look at the ministry of Jesus and you can see glimpses of the kingdom that's coming. You watch him conquer death. You watch him conquer disease and demons. He conquers hell in the grave. He touches lepers and he doesn't catch their leprosy. They catch his wholeness, right? It's, it's different than everything else we've seen before. He's showing us the powers of the age to come. In other words, he's saying, you'll see this in full strength later, but I'm gonna give you these preview windows, this movie trailer of what the kingdom brings. No disease, no sin, no death, no pain. That's what's coming, right? You, but we, we live in this world. That day hasn't arrived in fullness, right? We, we still suffer. Disease still racks our bodies and chronic pain and depression and broken relationships and broken marriages and addiction, Right? But God never breaks his promise. Christians, we, we live, we hang on that truth. God never breaks his promises. God will triumph over all the evil that hounds us in this world. That is the best news we've ever heard. If we believe it, that news will change our lives. But what does that say to us now? It says to you, follower of Jesus, don't look to any other source for ultimate hope. Bring your guilt and your shame and lay it at the foot of his cross. Bring your self-righteous pride and religion and lay it there as well. Hope in him. Bring your cares to a sovereign God who hears us when we pray. Place your hope in the return of the king. Remember life is a, a vapor. Bank everything on God's faithfulness. That's what this text is urging us to do. This kingdom will triumph over evil. Next point, this kingdom will bring everlasting peace. Our text gives us all these pictures of perfect serenity, right? The absence of violence. It says the lion and the lamb will lay down together. Martin Luther said 500 years ago, if the lion and the lamb lay down together, you'll have to keep replacing that lamb, right? But a day is coming when the lion and the lamb will lie down together. There will be an absence of violence and war, right? That's the coming kingdom. Verse 9, they will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain. Christian, do you long for the return of the king? When, when all that's wrong in this world is made right, when he comes back, what, what a day that will be. That is, as Christians have referred to it for centuries, the blessed hope. That is a stabilizing force. It holds our feet steady in this present darkness. That, that reality says to you and me on any given difficult Thursday morning, why so downcast, oh my soul, hope in God He will accomplish all of his purposes. He will keep every promise. Today's suffering will be worth it in the end. This message of good news is the best news we've ever heard, but it is the best news that some have never heard. It's the best news that some have never heard, and that's where our passage really reaches its full crescendo there in verse 9. For the land, it's sometimes translated, the earth will be 
as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. What an image. On that day, the root of Jesse, that's the Messiah, will stand as a banner for the peoples and the nations will look to him for guidance and his resting place will be glorious. You know, in in cultures all around the world, we understand the concept of what a flag is, what a flag does. You you know where you see that? You see that in the opening uh, ceremony at the Olympics, right, where the nation comes in under the waving flag of their country, and we, we get this, right? That's, that's who we are. We're, we're this. That we're from this country. And this, this passage draws an amazing, a staggering picture. It says, on that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner over the nations, as a banner over all the peoples. One banner will fly over the redeemed from every tribe and tongue and nation, and that banner will be Jesus Christ. How awesome is that gonna be? We'll walk into the new Jerusalem under the waving flag of our Redeemer. And this is news the whole world must hear. This is news the whole world must hear. Matter of fact, about 800 years after Isaiah writes these words, the Apostle Paul is telling the Roman believers, he says, here's my aim. I want to bring this gospel and preach this gospel where Jesus Christ has not been named. I want to take this gospel to places where they don't know the name of Jesus. And there in Romans chapter 15, with unreached people groups in his heart, Paul quotes four Old Testament passages. Here they are. So he's talking about the Gentiles and his desire that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will sing, I will praise you among the Gentiles and I will sing praise to your name. Again, here's another Old Testament text. Rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, and here's our text. The root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles, and the Gentiles will hope in him. In other words, when the Apostle Paul thinks of people who haven't heard the gospel, our text comes to mind. Isaiah 11 comes to mind. Romans 15, if you will, is the Apostle Paul laying a global vision before the church at Rome. Romans 15, if you will, is global offering moment for the church at Rome. He's saying, baskets are down front, get me to Spain. Baskets are down front, let's send this word out. It hasn't reached Spain yet. Bring your money and let's get these resources so that we can get the word where it hasn't gone yet. Brooke Hills, let's let's not engage the plight of global lostness half-heartedly. Global offering is is our way, particularly in December, it's our way of making a concrete statement about our passion to see Jesus' name proclaimed and worshipped among all the nations where people have never heard his name. And so I want to urge us, as we finish out this year, let's give cheerfully, Let's give sacrificially. Let's dig deep into what this world calls treasure and say, go. Let's let's make disciples. Let's tell the world Jesus has come. These are eternal 
investments. That's why we, we make these bids for you to give without apology. We're not, don't bat an eye, not scared to do it, absolutely glad and bold and confident in asking us to give to the cause of making Jesus' name known around the world. You know, people always talk about this, right? They talk about wanting to be a part of something bigger than themselves. I want to be a part of something bigger than myself. Well, try this on. Jesus Christ is scheduled to take over planet Earth. <laughs> How's that size up for us, right? Is that exciting enough for us? The Church of Brook Hills, think about this, not just, you know, the, the faceless church in the universe. Us, our local church, members here at Brook Hills, the Church of Brook Hills has a formal summons from God himself to press our lives into the service of that mission, to press our resources into leveraging that mission. Mission of the church is to ready the nations for the coming of the Lord. He is coming back. First advent has already happened. Second advent is coming. And in the very last chapter of the Bible, when all of history is culminated at Christ's return, how does Jesus there in Revelation 22 identify himself? You know what text he thinks of? Isaiah 11. Jesus stands at the pinnacle of history and proclaims these words. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus the king over all the kings, the Lord over all the lords, will draw forth his people from every nation under heaven, and he alone is the one who has the authority to do it. Matter of fact, we remind ourselves of that reality every Sunday when we recite the Great Commission. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine, go get them. Bring this word to the nations. I have the authority to draw them. He has the power, friends, to break through every form of unbelief on the planet, every false religion on the planet. He has the power to remove scales and veils over people's eyes that Satan has used to blind their minds, the minds of those who do not believe. He has the power to remove those veils. Jesus has the wherewithal, Jesus has the, the heft, the sovereign wherewithal to summon the nations to bow the knee in recognition of his unparalleled worth and glory and beauty. How much fun would it be as a church for us to throw ourselves into the service of that cause? That's the question we're asking all year. That's the question we're uniquely asking in December. 